BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 4 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we show you how to turn your fear into health, wealth, and happiness. If you want something you've never had before, you have to do something you've never done before. That means suffering and taking risk. Building a positive relationship to suffering is one of the most important life skills that you can master. Suffering is the true training ground for self-transcendence. With our guest, Akshay Nanavati, we show you how to choose your own struggle and build meaningful suffering into your life. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we discussed how to get started building your network and traffic online. We learned exactly how to build an audience from scratch, shared insider lessons from the best content marketing approaches, talked about how to get your content to go viral, and uncovered a mind-blowing Facebook advertising strategy, and showed you why Email is one of the most important marketing channels with our previous guest, Joe Fear. If you want to build an audience from scratch, check out our previous episode. Now for our interview with Akshay. Today, we have another awesome guest on the show, Akshay Nanavati. 
Akshay is a Marine Corps veteran, speaker, adventurer, entrepreneur, and author of Fearvana, the revolutionary science of how to turn fear into health, wealth, and happiness. He's also the founder of the nonprofit, the Fearvana Foundation. His work has been featured in Forbes, Psychology Today, CNN, and many, many more media outlets. Akshay, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you so much for having me here, Matt. It's a real pleasure and honor. Well, we're, we're so excited to have you on the show today. I love your work and all the stuff you talk about. And I also really like that you have the word adventurer in your bio. That's just a really cool <laughs> line. I think everybody wants to be an adventurer, or at least in my, I definitely want to be an adventurer. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing for sure. So that's great. But I'd love to start out with, before we dig into a lot of the, the science and the research and the yeah. strategies around how to turn fear into health, wealth, and happiness... I want to start with your personal story and and how you got on this journey. Yeah, it's been a long road to get to this point now that with the, all the work that I do with Fearvana, but the journey to Fearvana kind of began when I moved to the US at about the age of 13. So I moved from India and Singapore, and soon after moving here, I got very heavily into drugs. I lost two friends to drug addiction. I was in a pretty dark space. I used to cut my own arm. I still have scars on my arm from cutting myself and burning myself. I did many things that sometimes I wonder how I made it out alive, and thankfully I did. But I was heading down that path with just like my two friends that I lost. And thankfully, my life changed after watching the movie Black Hawk Down. I don't know. Have you ever seen that movie, Matt? Yeah, definitely. It's an awesome movie. Yeah, very powerful movie, right? So watching that movie was a trigger that changed my life. Almost overnight, stopped doing drugs, joined the Marines, despite two doctors telling me that boot camp would kill me because of a blood disorder I was born with. And obviously, I survived. And through the Marines, I started to find the beauty in adversity, the beauty in challenging myself and exploring really the limitlessness of the human potential. So I started doing other things like mountain climbing, cave diving, skydiving, ice climbing. I mean, you name it. Kind of nature became my playground to push myself and test myself. And then in 2007, I was deployed to Iraq as an infantry Marine, where one of my jobs out there was to walk in front of vehicles looking for bombs before they could be used to kill me and my fellow Marines. So pretty dangerous job, as you might imagine. But it taught me a lot, once again, about navigating the experience of fear and having to deal with it. But so I you know, ultimately thrived in the experience of war. But my toughest battle really was after coming home. I struggled with PTSD, depression, alcoholism. I was on the brink of suicide. I was at a point in my life that I just binge drink just liters of vodka a day until one morning I actually pictured myself walking over to the kitchen, picking up a knife and slitting my own wrists. And that was a very dark moment in my life that kind of was the trigger to changing everything. After that is when I started researching neuroscience, psychology, spirituality. Initially, it was just to heal myself, but it led me on this far more meaningful quest to figure out how do we collectively navigate human suffering? Because obviously I'm not the only person who suffered, right? So I spent years researching, reading books, and just really delving deep into the subject. And it eventually led me to Fearvana and everything that I do now with the book and the whole the whole line of work and everything I do around this concept and this ethos of Fearvana. Such a powerful story. And I'm so thankful, and I know the listeners will be thankful too, that that you made it through that tough struggle. And now you're on this mission to to help people and help people understand fear and what it really is and, and the power that can come with fear. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah. You know, as I started researching and started learning to heal myself, I realized one thing just from life experience that everything worthwhile I had done had been absolutely terrifying and extremely hard. And yet we live in a world that demonizes things like fear, stress, anxiety, pain, suffering, adversity. 
when people hear these words, nobody thinks of them as positive words, right? We don't frame them as positive emotions, positive experiences. We demonize them. And yet in all my research, my, my life experience had kind of validated this. And as I started researching, I came to learn that neuroscience and psychology, even in spirituality, all kind of validate that we don't control what first shows up in our brain. So they've done really, really fascinating studies with neuroscience that'll show that they can actually register, they can find in someone's brain and that they've done, they can register in their subconscious, they've done an action before they actually consciously do that action. So if I pick up a glass of water next to me, it's kind of registered in my brain before I physically do it. And spirituality is kind of shown the same thing. And even if you think about it just logically, I mean, if I'm sitting in a room right now, right, and somebody walks in here with a gun, I'm not choosing to feel fear. Fear just shows up as an automated response, as a reaction to this external stimuli, because that's a normal reaction to a life-threatening risk. And the reality is we don't live in a world of life-threatening risks anymore. There are all we, so we create these risks. Our brain is not kind of designed for this world. So as I was researching this, I realized that the problem was not this fear, this stress, this anxiety. It was the demonization of this, even post-traumatic stress disorder. For example, you know, when I was diagnosed, they told me that I have PTSD because I struggled with things like survivor's guilt. I lost a friend in the war and I always felt like it should have been me that died instead of him. I was jumpy with loud noises. I didn't like crowds. And they told me that these were symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. But as I was doing all this research, I realized that being jumpy when there's loud noises is just a normal human response to war. My brain learned to say that loud noises equals death. So inevitably after the war, I was just a little bit more hypervigilant than everybody else who hadn't had that life experience and that experience, right? It being in war. So I stopped labeling it disorder, and I came to realize that the symptoms of post-traumatic stress are not indicative of disorder. And by separating myself from that self-identity, that label of disorder, I could ultimately create a new one. And so that's how I stopped demonizing any of these emotions and kind of came to realize that there are no bad or good emotions. There are only emotions, and it's up to us to decide what we do with them. And so much research has kind of even shown this. They've done studies, for example, with students taking a math test. And they showed that people had equally high, a bunch of group, groups of students had equally high levels of cortisol, which is the stress hormone. But the students who performed well were those who believed that they weren't anxious as a result of math. The, the other students who performed poorly said that they were, I get anxious at math. So it wasn't the cortisol and the stress levels that was the problem. It was their belief about stress. And that's the real thing. Fear is not the problem. It's the fear of fear. And it's the same thing with stress. Stress is not the problem. It's the stressing out over stress. And that's how I learned to kind of find value in all these emotions and even my post-traumatic stress. So just as a practical example, what I did was I found meaning in my survivor's guilt. I put a poster up of my friend that I lost in the war and it said, this should have been you earn this life. So the guilt never went away. I just learned how to use it as I did with all these quote unquote negative emotions. Wow. That literally gave me goosebumps. <laughs> Such a powerful message. And the point that you made that there's no good or bad emotions, we, yeah. we assign and create the meaning of our emotions yeah. largely through the filter of our beliefs. Explain that to me more. Sure. Yeah. We create a meanings to everything. We're meaning seeking creatures. There's a great researcher named Michael, Dr. Michael Gaza, Gazaniga, something like that. I forget how, uh, how to say his last name, but Gazaniga, something like that. Amazing research he's done to show how we're all meaning seeking creatures. And even if there's parts of our brain missing that we're actually not able to create meaning, we'll find meaning anyway. We'll create meanings. So we're doing that to external stimuli and we do that to the internal stimuli of our emotions as well. So as a tangible example of this, when I went rock climbing with somebody, she felt really scared. She felt terrified of the, of the climb and, you know, climbed anyway, but got to the top, came back down. And the problem was not her fear. 
after coming back from the climb, she said to herself things like, you know, why was I scared and you weren't? Like I wasn't scared on this particular climb. It was, for me, it was easy. Now, not because I was braver than her, but because my brain had created a relationship to these experiences that said, these things aren't scary. These things aren't a risk. So that doesn't warrant the experience of fear anymore. But she created a meaning saying, I'm scared means I'm weak. If I'm scared of this and you weren't, then how will I write my book? How will I be successful? How will I build a business? Because I'm scared of everything, right? I worked with another student of mine who said, I'm just waiting for the fear to go away so I can quit my job and start my business. And I said to him, that's your problem. You're waiting for the fear to go away. But he believed he should be fearless because we hear those things all the time. We assign meanings to our emotions, and that is the real problem. And in spirituality, Buddha said that we're all stabbed by the two darts of suffering. And I call the second dart syndrome. So the first dart is the one we don't control. It's like if I stub my toe against a door, the first dart is the pain. Or if I'm sitting in this room and somebody comes in here with a gun, the first dart is the fear. I'm not choosing that. It happens as a, as a neurological and psychological response to external stimuli. The second dart is when I start saying things like, I'm scared because I'm weak or my toe hurts. These, this door is stupid. Bad things only happen to me. Why does God hate me? And this self-dialogue we go, we go into as a response to the emotions. So I've seen this with people from all walks of life, people from struggling with depression, anxiety, PTSD. I had one, one person I worked with who was labeled with a depression by a therapist, and she started saying things like to herself like, I am depressed. I have depression. It became her self-identity. Instead of saying things like, my brain goes to a state of depression from time to time, but I'm not my brain, and my brain is not me. We are not our brain patterns, right? We are not those neurological patterns that we don't even control. They're wired into us as a result of everything that's happened in our lives. That's why I never even labeled myself alcoholic. I was refusing to assign myself that label of alcoholic and instead choose whoever I want to be and not be defined by these emotional stimuli. Alcoholism had just become a pattern in my brain, right? It's neurological wiring that my brain had learned to say stress equals drinking, but that's not me. It's just a pattern and I can rise above that pattern. And through conscious effort, you can actually change patterns in your brain. I mean, that's how building habits work. It's called top-down neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is basically the, the science of the, like, the brain's ability to change itself. You can literally change the physical and neuronal structure of your brain. And top-down neuroplasticity is when you consciously make efforts to change your brain. You consciously notice a pattern, rise above that pattern, and decide who you want to be outside of that pattern. So one of the most important things I ever share, and, and, I, and just has been a game changer for me, is we are not our thoughts, our emotions, our experiences. We are the thinker of our thoughts, the feeler of our feelings, and the experiencer of our experiences. And recognizing that space is everything. That space will shape your destiny, what you do in that space between what shows up and who you choose to be outside of that. So many powerful points. I want to come back and dig more into top-down neuroplasticity and, and this sure. idea of rewriting the brain. But before we do, you said something a minute ago that is one of the most important lessons that transforms your life once you realize it, and yet so few people do, which is this notion that it's not about waiting until the fear goes away. It's yes. about acting despite the fear, or if you can get really good, and train yourself, it's acting because of the fear. Yes, absolutely. It's because it's not going to go away. It's a standard part of life. You know, we respond with fear, fear, sadness, stress, anxiety. These are all normal human emotions. They're just part of the journey. But by seeking to avoid them, you actually do yourself more harm. You will retreat to the easiest course of action. And neurologically, that's what we're going to do. Dr. Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winning psychologist, wrote this amazing book, Thinking Fast and Slow. He said that we are naturally lazy creatures. The brain is naturally lazy and it will retreat to the laziest course of action. 
So you have to notice that. And kind of paradoxically, at the same time, we are wired to seek novelty. When we do things that excite us, we release dopamine, the jor hormone in the brain. It releases another chemical called anandamide. Anand, uh, the, uh, the word anand comes from the Sanskrit word bliss. So we're kind of this neurological wiring is kind of paradoxical in a way that at the same time we'll retreat to the laziest course of action because we seek comfort, yet we thrive on novelty, right? So we have to kind of become aware of that and realize that it's not going to go away. The best things in life come from struggle. And even neurologically, struggle is kind of required. You have to, in order to build new brain patterns, you have to navigate your way to making those mistakes. You Neurologically, you make these mistakes and your brain kind of learns what to do and then it rewires itself. So even on a neurological level, Daniel Coyle writes this beautifully. He says, struggle is not optional. It's neurologically required. So you got to suffer. I like to say to suffer well. To build a positive relationship to suffering is the single most important skill to master. If you can learn how to suffer well, you can do anything. Because not only will you be able to thrive when life punches you in the face, which we all know it does from time to time, but you'll also be able to smile in the face of the inevitable challenges that stand between you and anywhere you want to go. Because everything worthwhile in life will be hard. So embracing the suffering and the struggle of the experience will give you the means to keep pushing forward no matter what comes in your way. Incredible insight. I want to dig more into this notion that the importance of building a positive relationship with suffering Mm -hmm. and this idea that suffering is neurologically required in our lives. Tell me about that. Yeah, Dr. Daniel Coyle wrote about this beautifully in one of his books. I was researching plenty of this in writing my own about how struggle is kind of neurologically required because if you think about how brain patterns work right hebb's law it's this neurological kind of near the the science science of neuroplasticity is called one of these rules is called hebb's law which essentially states that neurons that fire together wire together and so if you think about a practical level like with my drinking right so stress equals drinking so at that level it's kind of these neurons that fire together at this is how you respond to the world and in order to change that you have to cultivate new neuronal wiring. So even if you just think of like a, you're walking on a road, right? A to B, these pathways become stronger and stronger. The, the analogy I use in Firavana is if you think about a sled going down a hill, when you put the sled down like a track on a, in the snow and you go down the same track over and over and over again, this, the snow gets deeper and deeper. And as you go on the same track, the sled is kind of trapped in this path, right? In order to change it, you have to fight your way into new snow. Right? You have to consciously sort of pick up the sled and go onto a new track. And initially, that's hard as you build a track. And once you do, then it becomes easier and easier and easier. So you have to go through that little struggle initially to change your pattern, to rewire the brain. Now, I don't have any neurological data to prove this because I didn't measure my brain science. I didn't sort of take the brain scans at a time. But I can say with like 100% certainty that my brain is going to look different now than it did when I was battling these demons. And they've pl- done plenty of studies to show this. They've shown that, for example, London taxi drivers, they have a bigger hippocampus, which is the part of the brain associated with memory. They have a bigger hippocampus than others because they are forced to memorize the streets of London. So London taxi drivers have this huge ability to memorize these kind of back roads of London, which is apparently very complicated. As a result, their brain has physically changed and they have a larger hippocampus. So you're changing your brain as you, whatever you pursue, that will help you change your brain. And there's another principle of neuroplasticity called use it or lose it. So what you're not pursuing, it will kind of die out. 
this myth if we use only 10% of our brain is very flawed. We use 100% of our brain, and whatever part is not being used, it's going to be taken over by another part of the brain. And you can almost think of it like a war. There's this war happening in your brain for neuronal real estate. And if a part is not being used, that part will then be overtaken by other parts. So they've done some like one quick, really interesting study. And outside of the morality of doing this on a sort of animal testing level, this these researchers took the hand of a monkey and they measured every part of the monkey's hand to see what part of the brain would trigger. So sort of the, the right pinky and, you know, the top of the right pinky, what part of their brain would fire when they touch that right pinky. And they did this to every, I mean, it was an amazing study. They did this to every single part of the monkey's hand. And then eventually what they did was, again, outside of the morality of this, but what they did was they cut off two of the monkey's fingers. And what happened was eventually they found that when they touched another part of the monkey's hand, it actually was firing in the part that used to be previously associated with these two fingers that were cut off. So our brain is always fighting for neuronal real estate, and you really want to be conscious about what you are putting in your brain and what is actually going to fire, because one way or the other, it's going to be used. That's a great point to just touch on briefly, this idea that you have to be super conscious of all the little inputs in your brain, because there's so <laughs> many subconscious influences. But before we... I just want to ping that point because it's so important, but I want to circle back and talk more about suffering. Because yeah. we have such a fraught and confused relationship with suffering in our in our society. Tell me about how is it possible to have a positive relationship with suffering? Isn't suffering something that we should try to avoid? That's the idea, right? Like that we should avoid suffering and because it's hard. The nature of anything challenging, like these fear, stress, anxiety, suffering, these are not negative, but they are more challenging than let's say joy or calm or happiness, right? They are more challenging emotions. That's why we kind of run away from them. But one of my favorite quotes of all time from psychologist Carl Jung, he says, there is no coming to consciousness without pain. People will do anything no matter how absurd to avoid confronting their own soul. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. You have to go into those dark spaces. You have to suffer and bring that into the conscious self so you can do something with it. He also says, again, one of my favorite quotes, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Like you touched on earlier, we are all operating from the unconscious. We operate on autopilot. Most of our lives, and even just again, studies have shown we operate at a very high percentage just unconsciously. We live our lives complete autopilot based on everything that shaped us into who we are today. And in order to change those patterns, we have to go into the uncomfortable spaces. We have to suffer to train ourselves to build a positive relationship to that. And you do that. I mean, there's many ways. Fundamentally, you you stop labeling fear, stress, anxiety as negative. You stop demonizing these emotions. You stop demonizing the experiences and recognizing that they are only emotions and only experiences. And it's up to us to decide what we do with them. And fundamentally, this just the mindset shift of not demonizing fear, stress, and anxiety is huge because the world will tell you, be fearless. Don't be scared. Eliminate fear. I mean, eliminate stress. You know, we attach words like disordered anxiety. And that's nonsense. That sends us down the second dart syndrome of this conversation that, you know, I'm weak because I feel fear. When you feel fear, no matter how it shows up, no matter how it shows up. I mean, sometimes I feel afraid sitting in my house alone and I live in a very safe neighborhood in New Jersey, which is crazy considering the things I've done in my life, right? I've walked in front of vehicles looking for bombs. I've jumped out of planes. I've done a lot of crazy, dangerous things. And here I am feeling scared sitting alone in my house. 
But the thing is, it doesn't matter how fear shows up. What matters is that it's there. And I acknowledge his presence. It's just, okay, fear is here. What am I going to do with it? So stop demonizing it is the fundamental starting point. The next thing you can do, there's all kinds of tools that have been proven to be helpful, like visualizing yourself moving through the fear. And not just on the other side, like sort of law of attraction will say, you know, visualize yourself all happy with the million dollars walking down the beach. The research has actually shown it's more valuable to visualize yourself in the process of overcoming the obstacles you face. So whenever I go for long runs, cause I'm an ultra runner now. So I do a lot of things like recently I ran 80 miles around a 0.2 mile loop for 20 plus hours. It was a brutal psychological torture. But what I will do when I do these things is I'll visualize myself in the suffering, in the pain, which I know I will experience and rising above it. So visualizing yourself moving through the struggle. What is the value, the reward on the other side of that struggle? Having clarity of purpose, of intention, of mission, knowing why you are embarking on this journey. Like when I joined the Marines, two doctors told me it would kill me, right? Like boot camp would kill me, but I didn't care. I knew what I wanted to do and I was going to do it no matter what. So having clarity of purpose and then fundamentally, like you can listen to every podcast, listen to me talk, read a book, this, that, and the other thing, but you have to put yourself in the suck. You have to experience the suffering and push yourself one step, one step further, one step further. I mean, today I run 80 miles, right? I spent recently, I spent seven days in darkness. I do very intense things, but this didn't happen overnight. I used to be terrified of Ferris wheels. I used to be terrified of everything. So whatever your limit is, push it one step, push it two steps, keep going, keep going. And you'll actually start to find that there's tremendous beauty in this. I mean, even on a neurological level, there's really a fascinating set of chemicals, this kind of chemical cocktail of Firvana that I call it, that releases when you push yourself into these experiences. And you'll find that it's actually the most valuable thing you could possibly do. Psychologist, Professor Mihai Csikmensihai, he's the author of this book, Flow. He said, contrary to what we usually believe, the best moments in our lives are not the passive, receptive, relaxing times. The best moments usually occur when we push our bodies and minds to their limits in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. This is a direct quote from one of the largest studies on happiness. And that's what he found that it's a, the key word there is a voluntary effort. So I call it a worthy struggle. Find that struggle worthy of who you are and who you want to be. It doesn't have to be running ultra marathons. It doesn't have to be skiing across polar ice caps like I do. What's your worthy struggle? I have friends who are about to be a grandmaster in chess, right? Writing movie scripts, writing a book, whatever it may be. Find that struggle worthy of who you are and who you want to be. And the journey becomes more enjoyable even through the pain. And there will be pain. It's inevitable. But pain is beautiful. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. I want to dig into a number of different things you said. Mm-hmm. Let's start with this idea that adversity or struggle is both inevitable and desirable. Yeah, I mean, we all know it's inevitable, right? It's going, you're going to suffer in life. People who have seemingly everything, right? People with all the money, who the success, fame in the world. We see that in Hollywood all the time, right? They're struggling with mental health issues, with addiction. You can try to go through life without it, but it's going to hit you. It's going to hit. It hits everybody. I've worked with nine-figure entrepreneurs who are battling their own demons, right? So it's going to show up no matter where you are in life, which is why I say don't wait for it. Seek it out. Train in it. Any emotion you are struggling with, any experience you are struggling with, the only way to get better at it, deliberate practice, right? Like putting yourself in situations of struggle, and that's how you train to get better at it. Even in emotions, you can actually train yourself emotionally as well. So, for example, one of the things I do today is I will consciously watch scenes from war movies knowing they will make me cry, 
knowing they'll make me cry. And they always do. They tear me up. But I do this because instead of letting my guilt, letting these emotions that I struggle with, letting my darkness and my demons consume me and take control of me, I put myself in those situations consciously and I train in them. And I do this through ultra running. I do this through writing a book was one of the hardest things I've ever done. You know, I'm building a business. Everything worthwhile is hard. And you have to train yourself to to fall in love with that suffering, to suffer well. It's fundamental. And it's actually, like I said, it's enjoyable. I mean, I know when I go on long runs, I will go through moments. Like just recently, a couple of weeks ago, I ran 72 miles and I hit this soul crushing low at mile 48, like soul crushing. I was in such a dark space. And I just sat there being in pure victim mode, complaining about life, how much everything sucks. I don't want to be here. I wanted to call an Uber to, you know, to quit and go back home. And I said, all right, just pause, take one more step. And the pain was overwhelming. But the beautiful thing about pain is that it's all consuming. There's a kind of purity to pain that when you're in pain, when you're in suffering, there's nowhere else to be but in the consumption of that pain. And then you get to decide what you do with that pain. I like to say that suffering is a training ground for self-transcendence. You know how we talked about that top-down neuroplasticity, right? Like being conscious about changing your subconscious. That's what self-transcendence is. You rise above your feelings. You rise above your experience. You rise above your thoughts and choose who you want to be outside of them. And suffering trains you to, to transcend the self. It's the best training ground you can possibly get for self-transcendence. And it will show you how to keep moving forward through the suck, through the pain, through whatever you're feeling. A mantra that I often use to guide me is be with what is, but do not become what is. And this is how I move through pain when I'm in it. And I'm in it a lot. <laughs> Incredible quote. Suffering is a training ground for self-transcendence. And the, the point that you bring up in relation to that, this idea that we shouldn't wait for the fear, but we should actually seek it out. We should train in it. I love that phrase, train in the conditions that you're afraid of. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the only way to get better at it, right? It's the, I mean, it's the only way that's why the Marine Corps bootcamp, they push you through struggle. They make it's very, very hard. You cannot get better at something without doing it. This sort of the misconception of flow that I often see is, you know, there's these two states of deliberate practice and flow, right? People say in flow that there's this paradigm has been set, which I think is highly destructive that when you're in a flow state, life is easy and everything is grand and beautiful and sunshine and rainbows. And it's not. You know, just as Professor Mihai Csikmenszai is kind of the father of flow, Dr. Anders Ericsson, he's the father of deliberate practice. And I kind of call Firvana the, the middle ground between deliberate practice and flow. So you have to struggle and then you will find yourself in moments of flow state where you're just kind of in the zone and you're no longer in the struggle. But you're going to kind of go on this back and forth journey. Everything worthwhile will have this dance between the two. When I've climbed mountains, when I'm in ultra running, like the beautiful why I love ultra running is you get to experience everything. Intense highs, intense lows, moments when you're in flow, there is no time and moments where you just get to ponder everything about life. It's kind of the you get to experience the entire spectrum of the human condition in one moment, which is why I love it. So train in whatever you want to do. And I mean, and when you suffer well, when you train in exercise, like exercise is one of the best way, best ways to do it, to train in suffering, because barring sort of serious physical issues, almost anybody can do it. And one neuroscientist, he calls exercise, quote unquote, miracle growth for the brain, because just on a neurological level, it dramatically improves the way your, you know, your synaptic connections and how your brain functions. Another neuroscientist said that if you could put all the effects of exercise into a pill, It'd be the best-selling pill of all time. And plenty of research has shown exercise is one of the best things you can do for beating depression and any mental health issues. But on a spiritual level and even a psychological level, exercise trains you how to suffer well. And you can apply those lessons in other areas of your life as well. That's why you got to train in it. So I, I recommend exercise no matter what your path, no matter what you're seeking. Build some sort of exercise routine because it'll not only improve how your brain functions to pursue whatever task you want to pursue, it'll teach you to suffer, which will help you handle the inevitable adversity of life.
it bears repeating one more time this notion that you should train yourself in the act, in the art, if you will, of suffering. It's mm-hmm. important to seek out proactively mm-hmm. suffering in your life mm-hmm. so that you can build that skill set, so that you can build that muscle, and so that you can yeah. grow, thrive, and ultimately transcend. Yeah. And you you obviously hate it at first. It sucks. <laughs> There's moments where it's horrible, but that's the best thing. As you do it more, you will start to develop a love for it. And that's really like counterintuitive, but there is bliss in pain. There is tremendous bliss in pain. And you just have to go into those spaces to find it. And again, you can't evolve without suffering, even whether it be neurologically, spiritually, psychologically. I mean, if you want something you've never had before, you're going to have to do something you've never done before. And that means taking a risk. That means stretching your comfort zone. It means ultimately suffering. So put yourself in those spaces and you'll find the ability to transcend yourself. A minute ago, you touched on a related piece of this, which is finding a worthy struggle or a worthy challenge in your life and how if you don't proactively seek out a struggle for yourself that you think is worthy, struggle and suffering will find you. Yeah. If you don't see, I like to say, if you don't seek out a worthy struggle, struggle will find you anyway. And it it will. We all know that, right? Any nobody, anybody listen to this, anybody in life has gone through some pain in life. That's inevitable. And a worthy struggle gives you the means to handle that pain and handle whatever pain you face. Now, as I mentioned, right, I have this picture of my friend that I lost in the war up on my wall. It says, this should have been you earn this life. My demons, my darkness, my pain, it became fuel to do the work that I do now with Fearvana to help others do this work. And that worthy struggle is everything. You know, Viktor Frankl, one of the best books of all time, in my opinion, he wrote this book, Man's Search for Meaning. And he was a psychiatrist who survived the Holocaust in Auschwitz. And he talks about how we could find meaning in, even in suffering. And that's the ultimate quest. That's what we are here is we are meaning-seeking creatures on a neurological level, but finding meaning to our lives, finding that path, that purpose, that is your worthy struggle. And I call it a worthy struggle, not passion because and passion is a good thing like to have passion for your pursuit is great but the idea of following your passion in today's world often conveys this notion that if i do then life will be rainbows and unicorns right like if i love what i do i'll never have to work a day in my life that kind of garbage it's going to be hard i love what i do but there are days where it sucks it's really really hard everything i do building a business writing a book running ultra marathons right i'm planning to ski across the ski to the north pole in a few months so all these things are brutal they're absolutely challenging and i have passion for them but that doesn't mean it's easy. So I call it your worthy struggle, that struggle worthy of who you are and who you want to be. And you find it by looking around the world, seeking references in your own world. Look at references in your life, like what makes you come alive. Look at people who are doing things out there. Like the ways to grow are basically surrounding yourself with people who are more advanced than you. And then you will learn, you will grow. You will be forced to kind of adapt and, and, and to transcend yourself to evolve into adapt into this environment of people who are more advanced than you. The other way is to suffer. Put yourself in those spaces and you'll find out, is this really for me? And then you'll, you'll challenge yourself but you'll discover what you're capable of. So start looking for references of things around you and things in your own life that will show you, okay, what could potentially be my worthy struggle? And then pursue that path. And it might not be the right, but my path has changed, right? I joined the Marines and initially wanted to go career, but I changed that path. And now I do what I do with Fearvana, but no regrets for that life experience. So stop looking for kind of that instant gratification that, okay, if I do this, then I'll immediately it'll be, it'll find the answers, right? 
push yourself into a worthy struggle and commit yourself entirely to it. This sort of myth of work-life balance, you know, I think is very flawed. Like forget about the idea of balance, consume yourself. Obsession is a beautiful thing. Let your dream of like consume the entirety of your soul. Like let it consume your dreams, let it consume your being and obsess yourself onto that path. I talk about my personal life and my work just like I'm doing now. And I talk about my work in my personal life. It is me, it is entirely me. Firavana is my ethos, it's my world. I live, breathe, sleep, and I will die Firavana, you know? So let it consume the entirety of your being and ultimately you'll find joy and beauty in that pain like arnold schwarzenegger put it beautifully you know one of the greatest bodybuilders of all time he said i like the pain that is necessary to be the champion i don't like sticking needles in my arm but he enjoys the pain that was necessary to be the champion so his version of being a champion was to be a bodybuilder we all have different meanings of what it means to be a champion find that so it's not just about suffering for the sake of suffering like i used to cut myself burn myself there was no virtue to that pain right so find the pain that is worthy of who you are and what it means for you to be a champion you bring up another great point, which is this notion of not seeking out quick gratification, not yes. looking for the easy path, not finding your passion, quote unquote, which is talked about so much in today's blogosphere yeah. and all the content online. Yeah. Instead of finding your passion, find something to struggle with, find something to suffer for that's really meaningful and important in your life. Yeah. I mean, and that's, and passion is developed, you know, like there's this passion. You don't discover your passion. You develop passion. Like as an example, Michael Phelps used to be terrified of swimming, terrified of swimming, but you know, he became Michael Phelps, one of the most, he won more Olympic medals than anybody in history, you know, the greatest swimmer of all time. So he struggled and through struggle, you will develop passion. So, so find, pursue struggle, pursue a worthy struggle, pursue a meaningful struggle and passion will develop as a result of that not the other way around. And you got to kind of put yourself in those uncomfortable situations to figure out your passion. I mean, I used to hate long distance running and now here I am doing crazy things like running 80 miles or run, I ran 167 miles across Liberia last year to help build the first sustainable school out there, you know? So various things like that as a result of testing and putting myself out there and finding that worthy struggle. And this is very interrelated with what we've been talking about, but this notion of Actively putting yourself in uncomfortable situations is such a cornerstone. You've talked at length about it, but if you look yeah. at performance psychology, if you look yeah. at some of the world's top chess players, yes. the world's top martial artists, the world's top competitors across any field, you see the same themes again and again, and it yeah. all begins with embracing discomfort and pushing into it instead of recoiling from it or trying to avoid it. Yeah. And like you said earlier, right? Like we live in a world that does that. I mean, like I was like I was saying, Carl Jung says we will do anything to avoid confronting our souls. And we live in this world of instant gratification. We're taught we can get, I mean, these phones, you know, social media, watching Netflix, little dopamine machines that's teaching us to get instant jolts of dopamine into our brain. And that is so destructive, so destructive. It is highly addictive and we see that all the time, right? But it is teaching us like that, that we can get joy from instantly, like instant results. And you can't, anything worthwhile in life is going to take significant effort. And what you need to do is train yourself to fall in love with the journey, that the journey itself is a destination. The pursuit is where the passion lies, right? Like falling in love with the pursuit, not just the results. But again, the world will tell us that we'll be happy when we get six pack abs, when we get the million dollars, when we get the car. And we're always looking for the easiest way to do that. You see this nonsense all the time, right? Like how do, like I've seen this ad on TV, walk 14 minutes a day and you'll get six pack abs. Like I train like a beast and I know it's so incredibly hard, <laughs> incredibly hard to get that. But the whole point is it's, it's kind of missing the point anyway. And you see, even with diet, right? Like we'll say, see things like 
you don't need exercise to lose weight. And I get it. Like, yes, that's true. Like, I get it. Like, diet is more important in terms of losing weight than exercise. But what all these kind of mentalities miss, miss the point is that it's not about the result of losing 20 pounds of the six pack abs of the million dollars. It's about the person you become on the journey. And you will only evolve when you suffer. This is why we see people who are lottery winners, they you know win millions of dollars, but not only do they lose it very, very fast, it doesn't improve the quality of their lives because they haven't become someone different by earning that money. When you win it in a lottery, you haven't changed who you are, but when you suffer for it, when you struggle for it, you become a different person. The value of the results you get is not the results you get, but the person you become on the journey to getting those results. That is everything. Incredible point. And even the notion that I really like replacing, you hear all the time the, the cliche, it's about the journey, it's not the destination, right? Yeah. But I really like replacing the word journey with struggle because that contextualizes it in a way that yeah. makes so much more sense. It's, yeah. it's about the struggle. It's about who you become through that struggle. Yeah, It's not about getting to the end point. And, and lottery winners is such a perfect example of that. Yeah. And the thing is, when you get to one end point, there'll be another one waiting for you, right? Like, so one of my other mantras that I use is there's no finish line. I always repeat myself, there is no finish line. The only real finish line is death. And so reminding yourself that until then, there will be another struggle. Like progress is not the elimination of problems. Progress is the creation of new problems. So you you will, no matter what happens, no matter what result you get to, there will be a new problem that will show up. So learn to fall in love with those problems because they're going to be there anyway. But that's not a bad thing. You just want to keep having new problems. I still struggle with all kinds of anxiety on a regular basis at the things I do in my life on a regular basis. I still hit some very, very low moments, but I've learned and I still I sometimes forget my own advice. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm a human after all. Right. <laughs> but I've learned to say, OK, great. Embrace this anxiety. This is it. And in fact, I do this kind of counterintuitive thing when I go for runs. I'll actually wish for it to be harder because I know that I cannot evolve without suffering. So I say things to myself like, all right, I'm going to pray for the devil himself to rise out of hell and attempt to crush my own soul so I can stare at him in the eyes and bury him in his own blood. And I know that's a very dark, intense thing, but the point is that I am hoping for the devil to commit his entirety of his being to the destruction of my soul because I know the more suffering, the more pain, the more suck I go through, the greater the evolution, the greater the struggle, the greater the evolution. And it's very counterintuitive, but by seeking out more suffering, by actually calling forth more suffering, it makes it that much easier to embrace the suffering of the journey. <laughs> and I've seen this show up all the time on runs, in building my business. You know, recently I, I spent seven days in pitch darkness, isolation, and silence to confront a fear of stillness that I had. Extremely challenging. And I said, bring it, you know, bring out the darkness. Let the devil himself show himself to me and I'll face it. And I wished for it to be as hard as possible. And it was pretty challenging, as you might imagine. <laughs> Incredible. Once again, I love the way you phrase that. It's very Marines of you, very kind of military <laughs> yeah, right. perspective, but very cool. This notion of calling forth suffering and the idea that the bigger the struggle, the bigger the evolution, that's another key point. It's not just that you have to suffer to evolve, to grow, to improve. It's that the more you suffer, the bigger the growth. And if you want to improve your life, if you want to make a big change, if you want a big result, if you want to achieve something truly great, the path to doing that is to seek out as much suffering as you can on that journey. Yeah. 
absolutely <laughs> seek it out in whatever way whatever way you can find and and again it doesn't have to be ultra running or what, what i choose right find your own firavana find what firavana looks like to you your path of firavana as i like to call it and once you push into fears you'll find the the nirvana on the other side and that's the note that's what the ethos of firavana is is this these two seemingly contradictory ideas that are in fact very complementary and that fear is an access point to bliss and enlightenment i want to dig into making that more concrete. So you obviously have pursued all kinds of extreme activities and adventures, as we talked about earlier. What would be a simple example of a worthy struggle or maybe a couple simple examples of worthy struggles or some starting points to discover a struggle for somebody who wants to walk that path? You know, it could be anything. It could be raising a child. I mean, God knows I was a nightmare if a child to my parents. So it's probably the greatest worthy struggle. I always joke with my mom and dad that, you know, I, I blessed them with the diversity and fearvana by being a terrible kid. <laughs> so, you know, but raising a child is a worthy struggle. Writing books, building a business, whatever you want to do, working a job, everything is going to be hard, right? Like, so asking yourself, what is my path? And you've got to take some time to be still on this journey because when you, the more like you, we touched on this earlier, right? That we are constantly being affected by our environment. Everything we, we take in, in the environment is going into our subconscious. They've done some interesting studies where they call it the Jennifer Aniston neuron, where they put people into a brain scan. And when the, when a picture of Jennifer Aniston would, would show up on a screen, it would light up a particular part of their brain. And if the person had watched a lot of friends, it would light up even stronger, right? And if a person watched Simpsons, their brain would light up when Homer Simpson would show up or different things like that. So these little things are constantly affecting our brain. So what happens is it becomes very hard to separate ourselves from what the world tells us we think we need to be happy and a program path to follow versus what we really need and what we, what is like, and it's going to be a combination, no matter how you know, self-aware you are, no matter how much time you spend within yourself, inevitably you are affected by the external influences of the world. They are shaping, I mean, from the day you're born, your parents have, in, have shaped belief systems in you, mental models in you. They've taught you about how the world works. You've learned how the world works as you go through life, right? So inevitably your external environment and your world will shape who you are internally. But to kind of separate yourself and create a distinction, take some time for stillness. Stillness is so important. And another thing that rarely happens in today's world because we're, we're filled with distractions, right? I mean, phones, watching TV, drinking, drugs, anything, but sometimes even the positive things. Like for a long time, I realized that skiing across an ice cap or climbing mountains was just really distracting me from myself because I was running away from my demons. Today, I still do those things, but I'm doing it from a very different level of consciousness. So taking time for stillness to be within, to go into those spaces of pain and just to figure out what is like, who do I want to be on this path? You know, so I mean, I engage stillness in a very extreme way of obviously spending time, you know, seven days in darkness, but you can sit still, meditate, sit still, you know, sit still in a room, just being with your own thoughts, shutting off everything. No, obviously no distractions, no TV, no phone. Be with your thoughts and see where they go. Allow them to go places. It's very, very challenging, like very challenging, but it's important. It's necessary to go into those spaces of stillness to kind of really figure out who you are and who do you want to be for yourself and for the world around you. So stillness will help you tap into those those spaces to find your own worthy struggle and the pursuit that will ultimately bring you more meaning to your life, whatever that means for you. Taking the time to listen, to journal and reflect, yeah. to think about what's going on in your life and what the research often calls those kinds of activities are contemplative routines are mm-hmm. such a critical component of performance, of self-awareness, of all of these results. For somebody who's listening to this conversation 
what would you say would be a starting point or one piece of homework that you would give them to begin their journey? What would be one action item to say, this is the first step on the path to having more suffering in your life? First step is just find one little thing to test yourself. So could be skydiving, train for a 5K, go to a bar and talk to a member of the opposite sex. That's really scary. I recently went on a date and I was absolutely terrified. First time I went on a date in a long time. So, you know, do a little thing, just a little thing to push yourself outside your comfort zone. And that's why I suggested exercise because almost everybody can do that. Again, barring something severe and some something, you know, serious physical issues, but do a little thing to challenge yourself. And when you do, don't just do it, but like come back and reflect on it. You mentioned this contemplative experiences, right? Like journal on it. If I call it the action awareness cycle. So take an action and then get the awareness from it. Put your, like to reflect journal. What did you gain from it? What insights did you find the value in it? And I mean, our memory is doing this anyway. It's called memory reconsolidation. So do it consciously as well. And that's how you'll start to find lessons and then ultimately use those lessons to take the next action and the next action and the next action. And Akshay, for listeners who want to find out more about you, about your work, about the book, et cetera, what is the best place for them to find you online? You can find me at fearvana.com. It's F-E-A-R-V-A-N-A. And the book is on Amazon and Kindle, paperback and Audible as well. And 100% of the profits from the book go to charity and to some worthy causes we support as well. So just let you know that, yeah, the book is doing some good out there in terms of the funds we raise as well. So that's how you can find me. Well, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I love all the points about embracing suffering in our life, seeking out discomfort, training under struggle and suffering. Akshay, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this wisdom and all this knowledge with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me, my friend. It was a real pleasure. Enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're gonna get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode 
of the science of success.